Welcome to this episode of the Medical Affairs Professional Society podcast series, Elevate. I'm your host, Garth Sundin, Communications Director at MAPS, and today we're speaking about embedding communications in real-world evidence strategy with experts from IQVIA. We have Becky Galbraith, Senior Director, IQVIA Medical and Patient Communications, and Barbara Aroni, VP of Medical Affairs Offerings. This episode is sponsored by IQVIA with a mission to discover previously unseen insights, drive smarter decisions, and unleash new opportunities. So uh, Becky and Barbara, welcome. So I'm excited today because I think we have spoken about RWE from some different angles, but not embedding the angle of communications. Uh, Barbara, could, could you get us started by talking about why RWE is becoming so much more important now? Yeah, it's a great place to start the conversation. So we have, uh, when you think about the use of RWE in um, the life cycle, uh, in drug development life cycle and product development life cycle, and then uh, and then uh, in the usage phase, we used to talk about real world evidence just at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. We talked real world evidence when products were on the market. And we thought about communicating to patients and physicians and payers. And it was very much the end of the story. But we're seeing real world evidence increasingly interwoven earlier and earlier in the development process. So we're seeing real world evidence that is being used by companies to help them plan their early phase trials. We're seeing regulator acceptance evidence. So not only are we, not only do we live in a society that produces more and more real world evidence every day, everywhere we go, every Fitbit we wear, every time we visit a doctor. So there's an incredible abundance of real world evidence, but we're seeing a real openness to the use of real world evidence in different places in drug development and healthcare delivery. And so that's really changed the conversation about where real world evidence can be helpful. Um, The other thing that we're seeing is that the advancement in technologies, you know, I said, we're creating a lot of real world data. day, every time you see a patient, every time you see a doctor, every time your step counter shoots your data off somewhere, we are creating a real rich, incredibly diverse set of data that we could capture to be able to do research and analysis and communication about. We finally got technologies in place to help us harness that data in useful ways. So adoption of um, artificial intelligence and machine learning has really made those huge, vast chunks of data available for us to actually do something useful with. So I think it is driven by the abundance of data Mm -hmm. and by acceptance that real world data is more useful or can be useful earlier in the development life cycle. So those are sort of the two biggest drivers that we're seeing about um, use of real world data and communications. Okay. Well, before we move on to communications, I just wanted to follow up real quick. So if, if RWE is moving earlier in the development life cycle, how, how can we have RWE before an emerging treatment is in the real world? That's such a good question. Well, you know, if you look at, so I, my thinking around this is actually if you go to the rare disease space. So rare diseases have traditionally used real world evidence early in the development life cycle to help 
lay out the foundation for their clinical trials because you get those, those rare disease patients and you characterize what do those patients look like? What is their clinical course? What information is going to be useful when I'm doing my clinical trials to talk about efficacy of treatments? The use of biomarkers and personalized medicines are essentially creating rare diseases out of more common conditions. So it's unusual for somebody to be pushing something through um, the development life cycle that isn't a subset of a population. And so those same principles for rare diseases are now being applied across a larger swath of treatment development, because we're talking about maybe a patient with a common condition, but your product is for patients who are a subset. They have a certain mutation. They have a certain biomarker. They have a certain characteristic, their X line therapy, et cetera. So essentially creating rare diseases out of these common conditions means that we need to understand what that particular population's um, essentially what their baseline is. And so you can re use real world evidence to establish what the baselines are for those, for that patient population earlier in the development life cycle. Boy, it's like with rare diseases and personalized medicine, um, every disease is becoming a rare disease. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so maybe we're not developing these uh, treatments and then saying, you know, here you go, patient population, go try it. Becky, are we talking about communicating with patients uh, to, to generate RWE during development? I'm just thinking that this you know, you're not just looking at patient registries at this point, you're talking about communicating earlier in the life cycle as well, aren't we? Yeah, so I think from a communication standpoint, the rise in real world evidence means there's um, a broader range of audiences that we're looking to communicate with than ever before. So from regulators who want to know if a product's effective and safe to payers who need to understand the value profile, healthcare professionals, of course, want to add to their understanding of a product's profile above and beyond what's been demonstrated in the RCTs uh, in different geographies in different um, demographics and different patient subsets. And then, as you're saying, you know, as appropriate, patients also become um, an audience for communicating around real world evidence as well. So firstly, it's super exciting to have so many different stakeholders that we can be thinking about to bring the value of real world evidence to. But that's in itself quite complex as well, because you need to think about for each of those audiences, um, you know, what is it that they are looking for and what do they need to understand um, about a product profile and about the data in order for them to inform better decision making. So as communicators, then we need to make sure that we're tailoring the communications that we are um, designing so that we're really um, speaking to the, the right audiences appropriately um, you know, and talking to them about the types of questions um, you know, that they have. Um, when we think about patients, uh, you know, COVID is a really great example of where real world evidence is absolutely, um, you know, filtering down into patients' awareness and decision making. And right. we've gotten very used to seeing huge data sets shown to us on the news and on the internet and, you know, on the radio. And so our expectations is, you know, consumers and patients are, you know, increasing of what real world evidence looks like it's no longer a kind of um something that's uh you know in the in the darkness or in the background it's something that we expect to see and we expect to be able to understand it and and, and for communicators to help us to understand it so um there's, there's great expectations there i think 
we'll talk about a communications challenge. I mean, you know, people are making their individual decisions, certainly in the context of COVID. And I wonder if that's going to carry over into an even more um, empowered patient in, in, in the post COVID period as well for, for other diseases. So, you know, talking about involving patient communities and communications seems like a real, a real way of the future. Does this affect, you know, when do we start thinking about this? When does this start to affect our strategy? I mean, I'll start on that one because I think it's an important point to, to raise that, you know, patients are you know, an increasingly important audience here, but we do need to be careful and make sure that we're operating within all the relevant, you know, guidelines about communicating with with patients around particularly prescription medicines um, in the various countries. So we have to be extremely careful that we are communicating appropriately. Um, But, you know, I think considering uh, how we might communicate with patients from very early on um, in a communication strategy is, is, is key. And, you know, something, some really nice, um, uh, approaches that we can take alongside the more traditional RWE communications um, are things like patient lay summaries. So why wouldn't we, when we're communicating the results of a study, why wouldn't we write something that's easily understandable by patients for them to be really aware of what that what that data means you know, in an appropriate way? So there are some ways, if you think early enough um, and you're very aware of what's permitted in each country, you can start to think about how to bring patients along um, with that decision-making and that awareness of the data. Barbara, I see, I see you nodding. Um, uh, so communicating RWE, are, are there specific challenges in communicating RWE or, or even emerging opportunities? Yeah, so I mean, there are some there are some challenges around communication for RWE. I, I don't necessarily think that it is easier or harder than any type of scientific communication. I just think it's different. Um, you know, the scientists and specialists that we involve when we're communicating about RWE are a little bit different from the ones that we would use to communicate about a clinical trial result. And so the use of epidemiologists who can help us interpret the data in the context of the real world, in the context of the of population data are really important when we're communicating um, about real world evidence. Uh, so, you know, there are, there are some components from a scientific standpoint about these communications. The other thing is that we want to make the real world evidence as accessible as possible. And we want to be able to help people really understand not just what does this, not just what data have we gotten, but what does this actually mean? How can we interpret this in a larger population setting? So I do think that there are some unique challenges to real world data. Um, that's why uh, that's why we really like to try to think about the communication of real world data early in the process. So we tell companies when they're putting together their evidence generation plans around phase two for what your future evidence needs here. At the same time as they're putting together those evidence generation plans, they should be thinking about the communication. There's ab- like there is no point in generating evidence unless you intend to use it somehow to communicate to the world about your uh, about what you have done. And so we really talk to companies about bundling those two things together. An evidence generation plan. It, I mean, and and then some companies, it's complicated. Evidence generation, evidence dissemination might be handled in two different parts of the organization. But if you 
talking about evidence generation, you should be very quickly talking about evidence dissemination afterward. After all, that's that that's the purpose. <laughs> that's why we're trying to amass all this information to begin with. So I I never think it's too early to talk about evidence dissemination. That's interesting. And you bring up a good point with uh, expert identification too, that we're talking about some new people here. You know, it used to be just the oncologist presenting at ASCO, um, you know, or the person who has the most clinical trials or the most publications. But you're saying that communicating RWE you may be looking towards epidemiologists or maybe people in the public health sphere more? Are, are, we, are we talking about different experts needed here with RWE? I think so. And I'm, I'm interested in Becky's perspective on this as well, but I think so because there is, you know, if, if you think about looking at a data set that is, you know, some of these COVID data sets are 20, 30, 40,000 patients. Yeah requires a special understanding of how to translate that data into something real that doesn't necessarily sit with every scientist that we're used to working with for other medical communications. So really an epidemiologist or a statistician who's trained in methods for epidemiology are incredibly important to make sure we're interpreting and communicating correctly. Becky, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, um, I think, you know, the, some of the challenges that we can experience with real world evidence uh, communications is that we can come a little bit late to it. Um, and so one of the pitfalls that we sometimes see is the evidence is you know, designed and generated. And then uh, we find ourselves starting to think about how do we then communicate it using you know, input from our you know, epidemiologists and statisticians, et cetera, and designing that, that communication. However, if we'd have thought about that a little bit earlier, we, we might have been able to think about some of the complexity of the design of that study in the first place. So what were its objectives? What was it setting out to um, establish? Uh, why did we design that real world evidence generation initiative in the way that we did? Why did we select the data, um, the data sets or the data approaches that we did? And, and why did the epidemiologists and the statisticians analyze it and interpret the data in a certain way? And if we can do that early enough, it helps with the transparency um, of the real world evidence generation process. It helps, um, to, uh, helps us to be clear of why uh, we undertook the study in the first place and why the methodology that we selected was the right one that then helps us to be really clear in the communication of the results later on. It helps to build understanding of where those data fit in um, to the wider picture. And it also helps us if we've had that um, due diligence earlier on in the process by working with the statisticians and the epidemiologists um, on, you know, how can we articulate what you've been doing more clearly? That then helps as we start to think about publications um, and as we get to things like peer review, a lot of the um, potential questions that a peer review panel might ask of why did you structure it this way have been well thought about and well um, described. And that then helps us with the communication later on. So it's about involving these different um, uh, sets of expertise to uh, analyze and contextualize the data, but it's then working with them to help us to communicate that every step of the way rather than uh, post hoc. Yeah, it's funny, I was chatting with rare disease folks just last week, and they were saying that one big challenge in medical affairs is that you don't only have to message your, you know, safety and efficacy, you may have to message how a gene therapy works, for example, or, or how your treatment works. And it, it seems like, do we in industry need to with RWE, not only be communicating the results, but be communicating 
how we did our studies and why that makes RWE results valid. Yes, I mean, I think cell and gene therapy is an excellent opportunity for us all to think about how we communicate about what, how we communicate and about what um, treatments and about treatments and how they actually work. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, co- the COVID vaccines taught us that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of confusion about what's actually happening from a biological standpoint with the COVID vaccine. So I do think that that has opened our eyes for a lot of the cell and gene therapy work to think about how to best communicate to people what the actual function of the treatment is. And that is, uh, you know, from a real world perspective, that's not necessarily real world data, but it certainly is real world communication. So it certainly is an opportunity to say, you know, is an average reader going to understand this piece of information? And I think that's another place where that's another place where communications and evidence dissemination hits up against the public, which, you know, it, our, our brave new world, people have access to incredible data sources that they may or may not understand. And so I do think that that might change the way we think about um, medical communication, communication about treatments to make sure it's understandable in the, in the general population. And, and I was thinking more, do we have to communicate how real world evidence works so that oh. as we, as we go out with the findings of real world evidence, people, people believe it. Yeah. 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 That's a good point too. That's a good point too. Getting that sort of uh, establishing. And I mean, in, when you're establishing how real world evidence works, of course, you know, there's benefits and limitations to any study design, whether it's real world or an interventional traditional study, there's always going to be benefits and limitations. So I do think that that, that, that is part of the communication is, is to show how, how you are learning something unique from real world evidence, but how you are then in exchange, giving up the controlled environment of a clinical trial. So. And Becky, have you found resistance to um, when you go out and communicate real world evidence, do you find that there are barriers to belief that may not be there for an RCT? That's an interesting question. And I think, you know, there there is work to do to make sure that the um, the perceived rigor and transparency um, of real world evidence um, comes through really clearly in the communications of those uh, data generation initiatives. So, you know, with with RCTs, for example, the methodology is very clearly explained, the the results are very clearly um, explained. And with real world evidence, we should apply the same rigor, we should make very clear why that study is being undertaken and what its um, objectives are. Mm -hmm. We should be absolutely transparent about the methodology that's being employed and why. And then the data and the results should be communicated um, so that we can then, you know, make sure that there is that transparency and that credibility um, and that the, you know, the the data that has been generated is uh, offered uh, through peer review to the clinical community. And that is is the right way um, to then overcome any barriers about the perceived value of real world evidence if we're as apply as much rigor um, and transparency as you'd expect from an RCT communication. Well, I think it's so interesting that RWE is not just here is the treatment in the real world and let's see how it works in various patient populations, but that using RWE earlier can put the patient at the center of development. That requires, you know, again, that real world understanding but also that two-way flow of information and communication with 
the patients, and, and everyone in these ever-shrinking disease communities. Well, so thank you, Becky and Barbara, for joining us today. To learn more about how your organization can partner with IQVIA, uh, visit IQVIA.com. That's I-Q-V-I-A.com. MAPS members, don't forget to subscribe. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Medical Affairs Professional Society podcast series, Elevate.